Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week in the kick, a three-peat at the New York City Half Marathon, and some truly remarkable records were set at the LA Marathon, including the fastest 26.2 while dressed as a (laughs) three-dimensional bird. But first, the third installment of my Moonshot Marathon attempt to run a Boston qualifier, hopefully, finally, after 10 years of trying. That means a sub 3.30 at the Bayshore Marathon in Traverse City, Michigan. But I have a lot of help. I'm being trained by a team of experts at Nike, the same team that is training three elite athletes who are hoping to break the two-hour marathon later this spring. Among those experts is my running coach, Julia Lucas. I have learned so much about training and about running and my own physiology and even some things about myself I didn't necessarily expect to learn. Trust me, it has been one of the most humbling but also enlightening journeys I've ever taken. That's coming up. Thanks for listening. For a recap of where I stand in my moonshot marathon quest, I thought it would make sense to begin where we left off in the last episode where we talked about my moonshot. That's episode 41. It's part of a conversation that I had with Brett Kirby, who is the lead physiologist in the Nike Sports Research Lab. At the end of our conversation, I asked Brett straight up, did he really think I could do this? at my age, given the time that we have? We're sure going to try. I think the most important thing is that we need to make sure we don't get injured. And so we need to take a nice, gentle progression, not load you up too quickly, and then build that load in a safe manner. Injury would be the number one reason we would not be able to attain that. So assuming we get past that, I definitely think it's feasible. Our whole team um, will work on all the aspects to make sure you can cut off those minutes and, and qualify. Don't get injured. Injury would be the number one reason we would not be able to attain this BQ. So, how ironic that a few days after this conversation, I stepped out onto my back patio to do a Sunday morning 12-miler and felt this sickening, ripping sensation in my right hip flexor. I was hurt already. This was supposed to be week one of my genius training plan. Instead, I barely ran for a week. Mostly, I just stressed out and did lots of icing and heating, and I had three massage therapy appointments. My usual massage therapist got the flu, so our producer, Christine Fennessy, put me in touch with Rosemarie Rotenberger, a local massage therapist who is beloved by cyclists and runners because she knows how to fix our problems and get us back out where we want to be, which is on the roads. All right, game on. (laughs) Rose is really strong. She has probably the strongest hands I've ever encountered on anyone's massage table. And after about 30 minutes, her diagnosis was this. My glutes were off. My butt muscles, they just were not firing, or at least not doing the work that they were supposed to be doing. And as a result, other muscles, especially my hip flexors, my psoas muscles, the quadratus laborum or the QL in my lower back, those muscles were overcompensating. 
and becoming tight and inflamed. Often there's a crossover effect with these kinds of situations. If there is an imbalance or something's not working right on the right side of your body, you will feel pain somewhere on the left side of your body. But Rose said that my glutes were off on both the left and the right side after digging into my hip flexors and lower back and QL and quads. But she did not think there was any kind of tear in my hip flexor, which was incredibly good news. So she and Coach Julia cleared me to try a very easy 20-minute run a couple days later. So after warming up for 10 minutes on an elliptical machine, I ventured out very anxiously. I felt like the Tin Man, rusty and logy. But I got through it. The next day, my hip was pretty tight and sore, and it grabbed at me if I tried to extend my right leg behind me at all. So I rested again. The day after that, I did a very easy four miles, as instructed, at my long run pace, which is eight minutes and 30 seconds per mile. It felt impossibly slow at times, but also alarmingly like tempo pace at others. The next day, I saw Rose again. This is what my finely tuned training plan had devolved into. Ice, heat, rose, a careful run, try not to sit down so much, try not to freak out. The next day, another four miles. But this time I felt much better. I ran easily at 8.30 pace and even finished the last two miles under eight-minute pace, even though I knew I wasn't supposed to. But my hip felt fine, and I just, I just couldn't help myself. I was obsessed with the time that I was losing and not focusing enough on doing what I needed to do to get better. I was holding on too tight in more ways than one. I'm sure the fact that this very audacious goal is being played out in public added a bit of vulnerability to the situation, and an anxiousness pervaded my days. I desperately wanted to feel like I was getting back on track. But before I could, I needed the all-clear from Coach Julia. So she came out to the Runner's World offices in Emmaus, Pennsylvania, to do her own evaluation. On February 1st, exactly two months after I went on my first base-building run in Portland, Oregon, when this whole thing began. She came out on a very chilly Wednesday, and we talked to my office for a few minutes to get on the same page. So we're out here to do, actually this is the first time that I'm going to put eyes on you after your little scare. I'm not going to call it an injury, but an, a niggle. A niggle. Yes, that's what my high school coach would call it. I'm gonna... <laughs> um, so about two weeks ago, you had uh, a little episode where you felt heard some ripping near your hip flexor, um, actually at the top of your quad muscle. And that can be a really scary thing. Your body's making noises that it shouldn't. Um, but uh, it's not necessarily catastrophic if you if you hear ripping. That doesn't necessarily mean there's a tear. Um, bodies are complicated things. And especially if you put them through many, many miles, uh, you can have little bits of what what most people would probably know is scar tissue, but really are fascial overlays where there's sort of sheets and cords that are built up over um, body positioning over many years of lack of mobility and lack of flexibility. Um, 
you're messy inside. You're messier than, yeah. than an anatomy picture would have you believe. <laughs> so we're still not 100% in the clear with this, with this injury yet, with this niggle. Um, but uh, where we won't be 100% in the clear until you are running your very fastest, and I, I can completely take the brakes off and not worry about you anymore. A coach by nature is a worrier, so I'll continue to worry a little bit, but you shouldn't. I will. <laughs> um, so a uh, workout we're doing today is we're going to start with an easy warm-up jog, and then we're going to go over your warm-up routine. Um, then we will go through a short workout, more of a, a linker workout. Usually we'll, we'll, at the beginning of a workout, we'll talk about whether it's working more on aerobic side or your anaerobic lactate tolerance or flushing. And this workout is really to make a bridge between um, a week off to easy running to next week, a, a real bulky solid workout. So the workout will be after the mile warm-up, six minutes at marathon pace, five minutes at half marathon pace, four minutes at 10K pace, three minutes at 5K pace, and two minutes just off mile pace, not quite getting there. Uh, with 90 seconds in between each interval. Um, I am going to do something that you're not going to be happy with. I'm going to take away your watch. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the long-standing runner. <laughs> yeah, part of me is very uncomfortable with that idea, but there's another part of me that loves it. Because I find myself, even yesterday, on the four-mile easy run that I did, and one of the things that you've been getting me focused on is doing my easy runs at a slower pace than I was doing them. I was doing them a little bit too fast. So I'm aiming for 830 pace on my easy runs. So cut to me on my four mile easy run yesterday, looking at my watch, you know, four or five times a mile because I'm so stressed out about being at 830 pace. And I, I kind of hate that. And I know we're going to get to the point where I will know whether I'm running 828 pace or 835 pace based on how it feels. But I'm not there right now. I'm sort of grasping for that level of comfort. And so I kind of actually welcome the idea of taking my watch off and just running today. Um, but a little bit of the feedback that you've been giving me is that you've been struggling with pace and uh, kind of force it a little bit. A, a tear, any soft tissue damage is oftentimes linked to just pushing when you shouldn't. So... Uh, before we go out and run, I want to make sure that you're warmer than maybe you have been. I think that you tend to underdress a little bit, mm. like most uh, devoted runners. We're such a, a sport of toughness. I am a runner because I can take the cold. Uh, but elite runners overdress and because they really respect their machine and want to take care of it. You warm up your Maserati and your body is infinitely more... Um, miraculous and complicated and precious than your Maserati. So you should warm up your body as well. What did you have in mind? I have in my bag sitting right next to us here, I've got a pair of tights and a pair, you know, like a base layer, a compression short-like base layer. They're not compression. They're just like basically underwear. That is great. Um, for a regular run, that would be perfect. Moving forward in the future for speed runs, I'd like you to wear a pair of sweats over that. You want to be you want to feel too hot before you begin a speed portion of a workout, and that's only for your speed days. Uh, but uh, when you're when you're moving fast, you're putting a little bit of pressure at all the connections of your body, and you had a little problem that uh, that we think was in the origin of one of your one of your quad muscles. Um, and so we want really want to protect those areas that don't get as much blood flow, 
and we can do that best by keeping everything warm. And in speed runs, you have a larger range of motion and just put a little bit more pressure on those tendons. So we want to take care of that. And today is a gentle workout. So I, I would have let you know beforehand if we were doing like, you know, 200s, <laughs> you really need to do that. So that doesn't happen today. That's fine. All right. Well, I'm going to get changed. Let's go running. I, do, do I sound like I am chomping at the bit to actually go running? It's a beautiful day. I can't wait to get out there and actually run. David, you have texted me that you're chomping at the bit and emailed me that you're chomping at the bit. And now you're telling me you're chomping at the bit. I believe you. We walked out the back door of Runner's World HQ to begin our run. All right. You came out of the locker room with just such assertion. <laughs> You're ready to go. <laughs> ready to go. So you are going to want to start too fast. I'm going to take your watch immediately. Wow. Right now. Right now. Um, and ask that you actually start slower than that 830 that I've been holding you to. Okay. Think more about nine-minute pace for the first three minutes is truly a warm-up do not think about logging miles at that point okay warm-up pace nine minute pace yes yeah whoops i'm running gravity is, <laughs> gravity is moving <laughs> julia wants this to be the new start of all my runs to begin at nine minute pace and gradually let myself fall into 8:30 pace that's my easy pace or long run pace about 30 seconds slower than my marathon or race pace. Julia described easy pace as not something I should make happen, but rather something I should let happen. It should be a pace that feels so natural and comfortable that it becomes second nature. That's what we're shooting for. So we run an easy mile and then stop to do a dynamic warm-up, something else that's new for me. I have always done a quick warm-up before my run. But in a parking lot across the street from an elementary school, we stop and do a series of skips, shuffles, stretches, squats, and, yes, lunges. And then, even though this is a test of sorts, we do an actual workout. 45 minutes later, we run back to Runner's World HQ, and I asked Julia how I did. That was as, as wonderful a result as we could have possibly hoped for. Uh, we took you through different pace ranges all the way from marathon uh, all the way down to just a touch shy of mile and there was no pain at all uh, you were not compensating limping in any way uh, and you seem pretty fit to me this is a good jumping off point and next week we can return back to uh, typical training uh, this was actually a positive thing because it really reinforced that we needed to uh, develop a better system of warming up and really yeah. taking care of your body, taking care of the machine. Right. Um, and there were very obvious effects of just running looser, longer, freer stride after we did a more comprehensive warm up. Um, people are surprised and think it's a funny thing to 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 realize that your your body doesn't know that you're about to go run when you're standing here getting ready to go run. Your yeah. brain knows it, and you think that your body should just know. It kind of does, but. Uh, to alert it with the language of, of movements and stretches uh, can, can really get your body on board and take full advantage of your, of your system. We really need to get back to that right now. Right. So I'm officially back in full training, Coach. He's back. Yeah. He's back. <laughs> Four days later, I went for a great Sunday eight-miler. I effortlessly dialed in 8.30 pace, yes, after running the first mile in nine minutes. 
I wrote in my log, best run in a long time. A few days after that, it was my turn to head into New York City for my weekly run with Julia, followed by a strength training session with my other coach, Joe Holder. Momentum was building. The night before, Joe and Julia emailed me a revised 16-week training plan that accounted for the week I had missed and that blended all my running workouts with all my strength and cross-training workouts. Although it was more complicated than any plan I'd ever undertaken, it was also fascinating. And once I wrapped my head around it, logical. The Nike team had tailored it to my personal physiology. After parsing reams of test results and data, And I learned something important. Turns out I have a relatively short fatigue constant. That's a measurement of the period of time between stress and adaptation, the two most basic physiological components of training and exercise. We stress our bodies in a workout, and our bodies adapt to that stress. And eventually, we get stronger or faster, or we improve our endurance. The ideal training plan will hit as many fitness elements as possible, but the right training plan for you understands how long it takes your systems to adapt to the stresses placed on them and to absorb the training and derive the benefits you're after. Because the most efficient way to improve your speed or strength or endurance is to stress the relevant system at the most optimal time. That's after it has absorbed the benefit of your prior effort. Despite what my high school football coach used to preach to us, it is less efficient to just keep pounding the same system day after day, which, not incidentally, also increases the risk of injury. We're all different. We know this. Our metabolisms are different. Our blend of fast twitch and slow twitch muscles are different. Our taste for Fig Newtons and Blue Gatorade is different. Same thing with fatigue constants. The average person has a fatigue constant of about 15 days. This is why Julia initially told me in mid-January when we were just getting started that my 16-week training plan would likely be broken down into two-week microcycles. She and the Nike geeks I have on my side, as she put it, expected my fatigue constant to be about two weeks, like most people's. And therefore, the plan would use two-week microcycles to stress and improve a range of fitness systems and get me ready to run a BQ in May in the most efficient way possible. But the team had been collecting a lot more data, and I'd gotten a lot more fit than I was at the end of last year. This newer data showed that I actually have a shorter-than-average fatigue constant, about 11 days. That might just be a physiological quirk, or it might be the way I'm running my workouts, or it might be a combination of both. But my body adapts to the stresses of training more quickly than most people's do. Why is that important? It means that two-week microcycles wouldn't work for me, because 11 doesn't fit neatly into 14. So they tweak the plan. My overall framework would still be 16 weeks long, but it would be broken down into four-week microcycles, with three weeks of staggered workouts aimed at each fitness zone, followed by one recovery week of relatively light workouts to make sure I didn't get injured again along the way. The point is that within each three-week period, the plan would alter my workouts in a way that was most efficient for my physiology. 
During that breakfast conversation in mid-January, Julia also talked about another physiological quirk. I have a short, dramatic cycle of depletion and replenishment of glycogen stores. A simpler way to say this is I have a brief, intense rate of recovery. Glycogen is what our muscles burn as energy during exercise. It's our fuel. I burn through my fuel relatively quickly. I fall hard and fast, as Julia put it. But I also bounce back relatively quickly. Unlike someone who takes longer to run out of fuel but also needs more time to recover, I cannot pack too many hard workouts into a short period of time. For me, it's all about getting as much as possible out of each workout. So my plan has at least two days of recovery between hard anaerobic workouts, such as speed work or intervals, aimed at improving my lactate threshold. All of that is what Julie and I discussed during our nice, easy nine-minute first mile of our run in New York City. Just as we did in January, we headed out to run alongside the Hudson River. When we got there, we began four one-mile repeats, run at 7.25 pace, right at my lactate turnpoint. The first mile felt great. In fact, it was a few minutes fast. Julia ran beside me with that effortless former professional stride of hers and let me track the pace. Halfway through the second mile, I felt the slightest of twinges in my left calf. Huh, I said out loud. That's weird. Over the years, I've had calf strains and hamstring woes and Achilles tendonitis. I knew that sometimes these little twinges go away, but I also knew that sometimes they don't. Julia asked if I thought I could finish the mile. I said yes, and we did, but it was as though my calf had been connected to a volume control and someone was slowly but inexorably turning it up, trying to shatter the windows. Halfway through, we called off the workout and walked back to my hotel. Actually, I limped. This was not a niggle. This was something. Out of nowhere, with my hip issue a distant memory, I was hurt again. For the next two weeks, it was back to the old routine. Ice, heat, rose, try to run slowly, rehab with Joe. But this time, the circle widened. I started doing yoga again. I saw a physical therapist. I wore compression socks to bed. I tried cupping. I was desperate. I spent two or three times as many hours on all these worthwhile but desperate feeling activities than I spent out actually running. And at this point, my head was a mess. So Julia put me in touch with Dr. Robert Swope, a clinical sports psychologist she has worked with in the past. He teaches and works at Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina, and works with all kinds of athletes, mostly at the Division I college level. I talked to Dr. Swope on Skype. Hey, Dr. Swope, it's David Willey. Really, really nice to meet you. You too. I gave him the whole backstory. My long, frustrating attempt to BQ, this unique opportunity with Nike, and my latest setbacks, and all the gremlins that came with them. I needed advice on how to move forward. 
Well, that's a great introduction, and, and um, I've got a lot of questions, but um, <laughs> but first I just want to say it's it's really exciting, and I think one of the strengths of this whole project is that you really are a part of this moonshot program, and um, I mean, independent of the fact that you're getting amazing technical training and advice and, and data-driven experiences, um, I think even bigger than that is the fact that you're running for something really, really big. Because I think hopefully you see yourself as a part of that breaking two-hour mission as well, even though you're not the runner that's going to do that part. Um, but because you're doing it simultaneously with the three runners that Nike is training um, using the same exact methodology. Um, but I'm wondering how you feel about being a part of that team itself, you know, the, that, that, the, the bigger project here. It's really interesting that you said it that way because the truth is I haven't been thinking of it that way. I've been thinking of it as something that is happening on a parallel track. You know, there right. are these three world-class runners that right. are being trained by this team of world-class experts to do this mind-boggling thing, right? right. Run a sub-two-hour marathon. Then on a parallel track to this was me as sort of the guinea pig for the average runner to find out how I can benefit and there by, by extension how the average runner could benefit from that really high-end approach that they're taking with, with the three elites. I, I, I can't say that I've been thinking of myself as part of the team. I really think that you in your own mind, if you don't actually do it physically or behaviorally in your own mind, need to form a bond with those three runners because they're going through the same exact things that you're going through, which is it's going to hurt them. Um, they have to watch out for injury. Um, they also have to watch out for negative self-talk. Um, it's, it's the same exact process. They're just faster than you. That's all, you know, <laughs> that's um, an understatement. <laughs> they're faster and they're more experienced, but but it doesn't mean that they don't have doubts. So when I work with teams, I, I think if, I, I try to tell individual team members, like, play for the team. Don't play for yourself, right? Like, do everything you, you can to make the team a better team. And that actually makes you a better player yourself because you're 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 not overemphasizing yourself so much. And it's, it's particularly tricky, I think, in your case, because you're going to be wired up frequently and you're going to probably run some more treadmill tests and some more lactate threshold tests and not to make it, not to make it seem like it feels like it's all about you. And if you can do that and you can remind yourself consistently that you're a part of this team, this, this team which is designed to um, push human capacity is really what it is, Right. And you have every right to do that as much as anybody else does. Okay. Now, the second part of it is kind of what to do mentally. I think when there are some small injuries um, where, you know, it's, it's, it sets you back, but the, it's not going to stop you from a training regimen at all. So I, I think kind of drawing on a little bit of the, the work that I do in another field of mine, which is health psychology, where I work with people that have chronic pain who are medical patients, is kind of working with the one day at a time prospect of, you know, mindfulness techniques, basically, how to stay in the present, um, how to have self-compassion, 
even when things are not going well. Um, I, I don't know how you are about this, but if you get hurt, do you tend to blame yourself or be frustrated with yourself or kind of yell at your body and, and, and kind of like what you said, you know, who am I kidding? Um, that gives me a little bit of a clue that that, that might be an issue, is how much compassion you show for yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good question. And I think it feels to me like what is more of an issue isn't that I blame myself or my body, but that I do more naturally go to the negative. Yeah, yeah. So, so what I would say is just take the neutral, which is not the negative or the, or the optimistic. Because if you try to be optimistic about this and you don't feel it and it's fake optimism, kind of like, oh, well, everything's going to work out great. I'm going to qualify. There's going to be a part of you that doesn't believe that, right? Yeah. But, but the opposite's not true either. The opposite, which is, oh, my gosh, I'm injured already. Who am I to think that I can do this? I'm 49, almost 50. My body's just going to keep breaking down. Those are all predictions, and those are all just thoughts, and thoughts are ephemeral, right? They don't really mean anything. Um, when you pay a lot of attention to them, then they, then they get the weight. Does that make sense? It does. So, so it, it's not so much having a negative thought that's the problem. It's, it's attaching a lot of weight to that negative thought as opposed to this is just another passing time. If your kids are anything like mine, they, you know, they spend a lot of time driving me crazy. And I have a lot of thoughts when I come home that are negative, you know, about the amount of stress that I experience from them. And then if I do something that I don't like parenting wise, then I yell at myself in my own head. Then I say to myself, oh, this is never going to change. I'm never going to be close with my kids or I'm going to always be a lousy parent or I'm going to be just like my dad who just spent too much time yelling, right? It's all these predictions about who we are and who we're going to become that are really only based in the head, hmm. right? If we're, if we're honest about this, David, you have no idea how fast you can run in, in May. I mean, you really don't. Like, like those numbers are just numbers. I mean, it's probably not likely that you're going to go sub three, but <laughs> right. But it's possible that you could go sub three twenty. I mean, who knows, right? right? right. Or you might go three, or you might go three fifty. We don't know. You want to go three twenty seven or below. We know that, and that's fine. But once you set that time goal, I think we've got to get back to the process of how how every day can you be committed to at the very least, being neutral about these injuries, right? Not attaching very much weight to them. They hurt, and what are you going to do about it, right? I assume you're going to get some treatment. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've been getting a ton of treatment and, and all kinds, and it's been very time-consuming, yeah. but I have embraced it for sure. So I'm sort of yeah. I'm sort of getting after that stuff with the same level of commitment and passion, but there still are these nagging doubts in the in the back of my mind. Right. And where do those nagging doubts come from? Well, I think it I think they come partly from history. Right. Because this it almost feels like that groundhog day phenomenon, right? Like, well, here we go again. Why did I think it was going to be any different this time? Because some experts um, you know, at Nike are involved. They're amazing, but you know, my body is still my body. Right. They, right. they didn't. Well, they didn't clone me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right, so so let's go ahead and stop that, and let's let's just label that for what it is, which is a cognitive error. Okay, so it's a cognitive error in that you're using that the past to, to predict the future. If you're going to be successful from this from a mental standpoint, you're going to have to basically say, I'm not going to take the past at all. The past is not going to influence my thinking about this, because six weeks from now, you you don't know where you'll be, and, and it's possible that the two weeks that you had off actually put you in a better place six weeks from now than you are than you would have been had you run those two weeks okay that's a possibility maybe it's less likely according to the trainers and the experts but we have to we have to include that in the realm of possibility because in all of it we're just we're just making predictions right predictions about how much time you can shave off what your um, you know your potential is all that kind of stuff but if that's what ruled sports, then we wouldn't have these amazing performances, right? Right. So, so I think even in desperate circumstances, and yours aren't desperate at this point, but they're but they're challenging, and they're not the way that you wanted it to go. Um, but that's probably the way these twelve weeks are going to go. And, and I think I would I would frame that and reframe that that it's not because you're forty nine or fifty; it's because you're human, right? Everybody suffers setbacks. And it's the same thing for you, I think, is that um, embrace the fact that you're doing the things passionately and with full commitment that you need to do to set yourself up to succeed. And then stop there with your brain, right? Easier said than done, but that's something that you can practice, which is every time a thought comes up of like, where am I going to be 10 weeks from now? Or who am I kidding? Or all the lights are on me and I'm going to disappoint people. Every time those thoughts come up, you need to be a little bit um, clinical about this and label those as cognitive errors. Cognitive errors, okay. Cognitive errors. It'd be like it'd be like a training error right now. You're not going to go out and run 200 repeats times 20, you know, with 10 second rests at at 90. percent That would be a training error, <laughs> right? Injured or injured or not. Yeah. So the same thing is you want to use that same devotion that you have to doing the right things physiologically and biomechanically and nutritionally and sleep and all the things that help you achieve physically, devote that same thing to your brain. So so I think when those thoughts come up, um, don't don't yell at yourself for having them, right? Don't say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, this is just the worst thing ever is just take a really neutral approach to him and say, Oh, that's a cognitive training error <laughs> and let that thought go and replace it with the thought that you need, which is what am I doing today to move towards the process and the pursuit of um, my own excellence? I really do want to come out of this process with a better mental game. Specifically, yeah. I, I talked about growing and I, and I do want to get better in lots of areas in my life by by going for this moonshot. But specifically, I want to improve my mental game. And aside from the things that we've talked about, are there any other components of having a really solid mental game that you think I should start thinking about? Um, so. So we, we've talked about a few of them. And, the, and then the last area I would just say is some visualization. So Billy Mills, for example, visualized about a dozen times a day for short periods what he wanted his race to look like. Wow. Um, 
and so when he actually ran that race in it was in October of 1964 he I mean it was a little easier because it's a track right and and he was able to see like where he was going to be in these 200s etc but he also knew that he, on paper he was about two minutes behind the fastest guy in the world at the time his name was Ron Clark and so he had to visualize a way that he was going to pick up his pace without falling apart. Yeah. And and so he spent, you know, a tremendous amount of time visualizing what that race was going to feel like. And I think by the time he got there, he had run it so many, many times that he just got into autopilot. Yeah. And and by the way, he felt really bad in that race. Right. Because <laughs> he went through he went through the five k. The, the halfway mark as fast as he had ever run a 5k and he still had 5,000 to go. So, so that's another thing to envision too, is you can be in the middle of this Traverse city marathon. You could be at mile 18 at 20 and in your visualization, you can visualize feeling like a bonk is coming on and how you're going to respond to that. Mm -hmm. Because if, if you just, if, if you don't see that, and, and then it comes on, you're likely to stop or, or slow down tremendously. Yeah. And so you may actually, I don't recommend visualizing, you know, bonking every single time you visualize, but throw that in there every once in a while where you get the start of that feeling about, and then how you would use your breathing and staying focused in the present moment and, and, a, and a pursuing attitude rather than a protecting attitude if you know what I mean, like yeah. that you're pursuing a goal rather than protecting something. Like, I, I think that that mindset is is important in this moonshot. You're in the pursuit of this rather than, you know, uh, protecting something that you've already earned. Yeah. After my conversation with Dr. Swope, I felt really encouraged. And also like I'd been sized up by a very perceptive therapist. Everything he said to me made sense. And I was determined to stop making those cognitive errors and to improve my mental game by, among other things, broadening my goal beyond the numbers on a race clock in May. So I have changed the way I have thought about my role in this Breaking Two project. I am thinking of myself as part of a team. I'm not just doing this for my own personal reasons. And when I talked to Brett again when I was out in Portland, Oregon, he actually told me that Lalissa DeSissa, one of the three elites who's hoping to break the two-hour marathon later this spring, got injured during his training phase as well. He fell during a run and injured his hip, and he runs 200 miles a week. He has won the Boston Marathon. He is not someone I would think of as a peer <laughs> in any sense of the word. But Brett assured me that he was as reluctant to take time off as I have been. He assured me that elite athletes all over the world struggle with the same issues that you and I struggle with when we are injured. Despite the difference in our ability and physiology, none of us like to take time off. So I also emailed Joe and Julia, and I said, even though these setbacks are frustrating, I'm taking the opportunity to get better in other ways. I have embraced the idea that my BQ, if it happens, will be the result of my becoming a better runner through the entirety of my training. In other words, becoming a better all-around runner is the path to BQing. 
My BQ is not an isolated goal. I also told them that I already noticed a difference in my posture and mobility from the work that we'd been doing for weeks. I said, I feel like I'm running more relaxed and opening up my hips and my thoracic spine and my running stride in new ways. Joe wrote back right away, you're definitely becoming a more conscious runner and doing all the small things that are necessary, he said. Your BQ will happen. We will make sure to get that done. But do not think of these things as setbacks. They are just your body giving you feedback as it is pushing along this journey. But the fact remained, I still hadn't really gotten into my training plan yet. And that had more to do with my body than anything else. My machine, as Julia put it. And to get my body ready, I would be spending more time in the gym with Joe than out on the roads with Julia, and truly understanding what it was he was trying to tell me. That, and the search for the cause of this latest injury, as well as a cure for it, will be in an upcoming episode. To hear the first two installments in the series about my Moonshot Marathon, check out episodes 38 and 41. You can also find our coverage of Nike's Breaking 2 project in episodes 33 and 44. Coming up next, a recap of the NYC Half Marathon. Next up in the kick... Digital editor Chris Michael and food and nutrition editor Heather Mayer Irvin. So on Sunday, uh, runners got to view some of the best parts of Manhattan as they cruised through Central Park, Times Square, and got great views of the West Side Highway during the New York Roadrunners NYC Half Marathon. There were a few impressive stories on the elite side of things. Uh, Heather, tell us uh, about how the women fared. Molly Huddle took home another victory, her third straight in New York, with a 108.19 and a really impressive finish. She was dueling with her training partner, Emily Sisson, who was right on her tails. And that was actually Sisson's half marathon debut. And Huddle was able to outkick her in the last 100 meters. And that last year's finish was also really close. And uh, Sisson's finish, 108.21, was the fastest half-marathon debut for an American woman. And actually, earlier this year, Jordan Hesse, who will debut her marathon in Boston, ran a 108.40. So we've got some pretty fast women out there. Great job from both Americans catching one and two. Uh, Kit Fox was actually there, and he was able to uh, get some audio from Molly explaining how she was able to fend off Emily Sisson. Yeah, I'd say it was a great run for Emily. Like, he, she sounded really silent <laughs> and good, and she looked good. So I, I wasn't sure. Who, I thought maybe she would have a few more steps on me. But um, I think maybe my experience came into play, having had that, you know, underpass and the little hill at the end there and knowing what that felt like for a couple years in a row. That's one thing Molly Huddle and I have in common. I've done that race, and I know that hill, and it's – it's a tough one, but uh, but great finish, ladies. So the men's field also featured a really dramatic finish. Ethiopia's Faisa Lilesa finished in one hour and four seconds. That's four seconds ahead of Great Britain's Callum Hawkins. 
Lulesa first gained notoriety last year at the 2016 Olympics in Rio at the marathon. He, when he crossed the finish line, he placed an X over his head, uh, protesting the Ethiopian government's treatment of his tribe, the Oromo. Because of his actions at the Summer Games, Lulesa has been living in Flagstaff on a special skills visa. But at the New York City half, he made the same gesture again as he crossed the finish line. Well, there was a good moment with his family after the race. Yeah, there was, uh, actually. So in February, he reunited with his wife, son, and daughter after more than six months. They came to New York City to watch the race, and his daughter ran to hug him immediately after he broke the tape. So there's a really sweet picture of him holding his daughter's hands after the race. And finishing it out, three American men broke through the top ten, uh, including Chris Derrick in sixth, and Diego Estrada in eighth. But probably the race's biggest surprise was Noah Drati, the mustachioed, long-haired, uh, sunglasses-bespeckled <laughs> um, runner who made a big splash for himself at the Olympic trials. He actually had a nearly two-minute PR, uh, finishing the race in 101.48. And he beat big names like Meb and Jared Ward, right? Yeah, both of whom are prepping for Boston. So we'll give them that. So uh, before we started recording, Heather, we were talking about uh, what we both had for lunch. And while I had, uh, you know, some veggies, it was a lot of rice and and actually more meat than probably uh, I should be proud of. Um, I know I need to get more greens into my diet. And I also know that you recently talked to probably the ultra runner who is best known for being plant-powered. That's Scott Jurek. Um, he shared his tried and true tips for getting more greens onto the plate for the March issue. Uh, what were your big takeaways working on that article? Working with Scott is always a lot of fun. He's a great person to work with, great runner. And, you know, one of the big takeaways was, you know, you don't have to do this all at once. So if you sub out your animal products slowly, and again, this isn't to say you have to ditch animal products altogether, but just getting mm. more plants on your plate. So, you know, if you okay, I'm not going to have a burger this week. I'll have a grilled cheese. And then you have the grilled cheese with, you know, a tomato and greens. Like those are ways to kind of cut back down on your meat consumption and get more greens. Okay. But so my biggest concern is I'm always worried about getting enough protein. Um, One question uh, is how does Scott get enough protein in his diet to fuel himself? So protein is a big concern among vegetarian and vegan runners, plant-based runners. Um, and actually another one is B12, but that's for another discussion. But actually it's it's not that hard to get a lot of protein into your plant-based diet. So you can have quinoa, which is the actually the only grain that has the complete protein uh, profile, which is all nine essential amino acids. Huh. Um, and then, you know, if you, mix, you, if you mix and match beans and rice, lentils and chickpeas, meat substitutes like tofu – you're going to get enough protein. So really it's about eating a varied diet and you'll hit the protein. Uh, B12 is more you need the fortified foods because that's only found in animal products almost exclusively. Well, thank goodness for quinoa. I know that's definitely uh, a big part of my lunch bowl experience. Well, and so even Scott admits he went from being a meat and potatoes guy to vegan, but it it didn't happen overnight. So maybe there's some hope for me. There is. And, you know, that's another reason why I love working with Scott is he eats the way he eats and he'd love for you to join him, but he's not going to push it. And he's going to give you tips that anyone can follow. So, for example, um, a few of his tips, you know, pick one meal a week to go plant-based or vegetarian, just one. And then before you know it, it might be two. 
It might be three, but it doesn't have to be. Just doing once a week, though, that seems attainable. Um, another one, and a lot of people do this already, is to hide those leafy greens that we need into a smoothie. You know, don't then load the smoothie up with sugar, but, you know, smoothie, yogurt, some fruit, a banana, and then you're getting that into your diet. And another one that Scott, you know, this was interesting, he would eat a lot of ethnic cuisine because of the spices, which he really liked, and that sort of lent itself to a new diet, much of which was vegetarian. Um, and this was just a really cool different way to get more vegetables on the plate. And that's ultimately what, you know, what the piece was all about. Okay, so so big takeaways. Quinoa is a complete protein. I can uh, sub out some animal products for plant-based ones. Uh, make one meal completely vegetarian or vegan and try some smoothies to um, hide the, the dark leafy greens. And that'll work for your kids too. All right. I think I can get this. And uh, so, okay, so for our last story, we're going to Los Angeles. Back to Cali, Cali, Cali. Uh, we had a big race last week. Nearly 20,000 runners ran in the Los Angeles Marathon. But we're talking about this story for a different reason. Um, there were a handful of runners who set a world record. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, so this year, uh, the Guinness World Records partnered with the event to provide on-site verification of records. This is something they've done for other races, but this is the first year that they did it at the Los Angeles Marathon. So, And, of course, when Guinness is there, people are going to try and set wacky records. When wacky records are being set, this is the kick's bread and butter. <laughs> so what stood out to you, Chris? Okay, so first off, there were eight official world records set. Some were existing and some were brand new. Uh, so the existing ones, they had to you know, beat the previous record. The brand new ones, they had to apply, and Guinness had to give them a time to complete. One of my favorites, I think, was the uh, fastest marathon dressed as a car. And this was set by Nicholas Pogu, who won in um, a Mario Kart costume, which brought me immediately back to my youth playing a lot of video games. <laughs> But he didn't have to dress up as a Mario Kart, right? No, I suppose he probably could have been any car, but I'm glad he chose that one because it was more fun watching him uh, wander across the finish line in that. <laughs> one of my favorites was, and I have to read this, it was the fastest marathon dressed as a three-dimensional bird male. And the costume, yeah, it was great and good for him and everything. I think he ran a 531.05. But... I liked how specific the category had to be. And our training editor, Megan Keita, has set a world record. Um, it was fastest marathon dressed as a fast food item female, and she was a hot dog. But I think that was my favorite, was a three-dimensional bird male. So the runner, uh, Jean-Baptiste Bordeaux, dressed as a giant pink flamingo, uh, apparently wearing for some reason a, is that a is that chef's an apron? apron. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's a very strange thing. And the only question that – or the biggest question that I had in my mind was um, what does the two-dimensional bird look like? It's a piece of paper. <laughs> so uh, other records included fastest marathon dressed in pajamas, male. I could beat that. He ran a 344. Uh, and fastest marathon dressed as a swimmer. I could beat that too, 346. Which I find kind of interesting because a swimmer costume is basically just swim trunks. Although he did have a snorkel and goggles on, and when I get out of the pool and don't take my goggles off, it's pretty brutal. So, eh, props to him. All right, fair enough. 
Oh, and he right, and he also had uh, floaties. <laughs> floaties. My, you know, my mom never let me have those as a kid. Really? I don't know if that was good or bad. I feel like we wouldn't let my daughter into the pool without him. It was literally sink or swim in this house. All right. Well, I think that's it for the kick this week. Thank you very much for coming down, Heather. Thank you. All right. We'll see you next week. Okay. Before we call it quits this week, a few things for you. First, if you haven't done so already, send us your training questions. Maybe you're looking for a great hill workout, or maybe you're wondering why hills are so damn important in the first place. Or maybe you're curious if you can get away with a three days per week training plan for a marathon. Whatever your training-related query is, send it to us. We have another training roundtable coming up on the show where we will answer listener questions, and we just might answer yours. Email us your question at rwaudio at rodale, or message us on Facebook at rwaudio, or tweet us at rwaudio. And that's not all. We also are looking for your stories on why you started running. Maybe you started to lose weight or to find a community or to overcome some kind of personal tragedy. If you've got a great story to share and you're planning on being in Boston in the days before the marathon, email us the condensed version of who you are and why you run or message us on Facebook. You might get the opportunity to record your story with us in Boston and be featured on a special episode of Runner's World's Human Race podcast. And finally, we'd like to give a shout out to The Outside Podcast. The Outside Podcast brings Outside Magazine's tradition of literary storytelling into the audio world. Their Science of Survival series presents sound-rich, immersive stories about how people endure extraordinary events. In the latest episode, the show chronicles the remarkable recovery of an extreme athlete who survived a paragliding accident, then went right back to the high-risk sport that nearly killed him even without the use of his arms or legs. Listen to the Outside Podcast at outsideonline.com slash podcast on iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Okay, that's it. Thanks to all of you who have given us ratings and reviews. We really appreciate it. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Daly. Be sure to join us next week for our interview with statistician, numbers geek, and elite marathoner Jared Ward. It's a great conversation. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.